If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, Preparing the Way. Preparing the Way. And Luke, he begins here in the third chapter, he once again, before we get into the spiritual and practical application and that which would convict the world, us included, the very things that John preached are the things that captured us as well, that, that pierced our hearts and, and helped us to recognize where we were at. But before Luke gets into the ministry of John the Baptist and the message that John would preach, he gives us once again some very precise historical markers. Now, if you've been here with us, I, I have really uh, felt led of the Lord, not only recently, but going forward, wherever possible, to, to give the historical backdrop and what is the spiritual meaning for us both as believers and the spiritual meaning to the non-believer, and then the practical application. What must we do with what it is the Lord has taught us? But Luke gives us some very precise historical background here, and just as he does with the birth of Jesus in chapter 2, uh, as well as even in chapter 1, where he mentions Herod in the first few verses, and that Herod he mentions is Herod the Great, not Herod Antipas here, but as we saw in uh, the beginning uh, of chapter 1, and, and more specifically the historical backdrop and, and very specific details in chapter 2, uh, Matthew does something similar in Matthew chapter 2 when he gives us the historical background there. But Luke, uh, he left off, if you were with us last week, he left off in chapter 2 with Jesus at the age of 12. Well, that's the age he named, but we then see the gap. Uh, it leaves off with Jesus at the age of 12, and then verses 51 and 52, uh, we would see the silent years, but we don't know anything about them. So the last time we have anything recorded about Jesus, uh, he was roughly the age of 12, and then we see that uh, there are those silent years afterwards uh, referenced in chapter 51 and 52. Um, but here he picks up and he tells us, starting at the third chapter, who was in power in Rome, as well as who were the rulers that comprised all the portions of what would today be modern Israel, modern Lebanon, modern Syria, and modern Jordan, if you understand where all that is on the map, all of that, of course, being east of the Mediterranean Sea, and that is what he uh, describes for us here, who are the leaders in that area. That also was the reason that would have made up a, a good portion of, not exclusively all of it, but Solomon's kingdom would have extended to all those areas as well. And what he uh, explains, first of all, he starts with Tiberius Caesar, who ruled, the, uh, ruled as the emperor of the Roman Empire from A.D. 14 until A.D. 37. He was actually made the co-regent of the empire alongside of Caesar Augustus in A.D. 11. Remember, he becomes absolute emperor in A.D. 14. But in A.D. 11, Caesar Augustus was given power for life. Remember, he was the, he was the Caesar, he was the emperor when Jesus was born. He was the one that sent out the census into all the world. He was the first emperor, but the second Caesar. First emperor, Julius Caesar was the first Caesar, and he would have been the first emperor, 
Uh, but again, they didn't formalize that uh, term, if you will, emperor, until Augustus, Caesar Augustus, who was adopted by Julius Caesar. So he's the uh, Julius Caesar, the first Caesar. Tiberius Caesar would be the third Caesar, but the second emperor of all the empire. And he, like Caesar Augustus, would be given power for life. But the way that the Roman Empire worked at that time is that the Senate would then pick the once the Caesar, in this case Caesar Augustus, were to die, they would pick the next emperor, and he would have power to life. But like all Roman politicians, Caesar Augustus found a way to circumvent that, and he brought in, so he would pick his successor, he brought in a co-regent, Tiberius, in 11 AD, to ensure that if he died, nobody would pick his successor, he picked his successor. And it worked. Tiberius Caesar would become the second emperor, but the third Caesar. And that would take place... Again, he would be co-regent in 11 AD, uh, but he became sole ruler at Augustus' death at 14 AD. Now Luke says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, uh, fixing a precise date here isn't, isn't easy because we don't know if Luke is speaking of 15 from co-regent at 11 AD or 15 from sole emperor at 14 AD. Uh, either one would make sense, because in either case, he was emperor, he was either co-emperor or he was sole emperor. Uh, most theologians and, and historians tend to think the latter, uh, that it would make sense, but uh, there's, there's disagreement on that, whether it was 11 or 14. But either way, 15 years uh, from either 11 or from 14 is what Luke is speaking of, so we don't have the precise uh, date, but it's, a, it's within a couple of years, we can be sure. I want to show you a couple of things on the map just for a second before we get into the study. Um, again, just to help you have a point of reference of what else Luke outlines here. And the reason why I'm doing it, if Luke thinks it's important enough based on the Holy Spirit to, to explain this, I want to make sure that we explain it or, or understand it as well. And we'll look first at the Roman Empire and then we'll look secondly at the area, uh, what would be uh, modern-day Israel. All right, so this is the, the Roman Empire under imperator or emperor, means same thing, uh, Tiberius Caesar. Of course, he ruled from Rome up there uh, in what would be modern-day Italy, uh, and you can see the red line. Uh, that, now, this, this map here was the rule of Caesar Augustus right here at the time of Jesus' birth. The one inset is actually, more specifically, Tiberius Caesar. I put this one up because it's a little easier to see. It had just had, to me, better clarity. But this one's a little more precise. You can see Tiberius Caesar actually had a little more of Syria, but a little less of northern Greece. The rest of it is pretty much the same. The, the, the boundaries get bigger under future Roman empires, all the way up to Hadrian's Wall, will go up into, up into England, and the Roman Empire will get larger than this under future emperors. But under Tiberius Caesar, generally speaking, all of Spain, all of France, all of Italy, all of Turkey, all, all of Greece, all of Israel, all of Lebanon, part of Syria, most of Egypt, over and through Algeria, 
um, all the way over to Libya. All of that was the Roman Empire. Africa, Europe, Middle East, all under the authority of Tiberius. And again, the, the lower one inset is a little more precise of Tiberius's empire. So that was what uh, Luke, when Luke thought of Tiberius, he thought of, a, he thought of the emperor that ruled all of this. And they really thought of that as the known world because in, the, in essence, even though it was more than, the, the world was much bigger than that, the empire touched the furthest parts of the world with trading and everything else would come through Africa, would come through the Middle East, and would come through Europe. So it had tentacles out into the rest of the world, even though it certainly did not rule every square inch of the world. That will only be Jesus Christ someday. Amen? Let's take a look at the next. He also cites for us um, these different tetrarchs and the fact that Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea. Um, so I, I overlaid this map. I've, I've just put these rectangles in here, which just kind of give you an understanding of Pilate was the Roman governor, and he had all of Judea, Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. He had the next section. You can see Decapolis, Galilee, and then Philip the Tetrarch, who was also the son of Herod the Great. Uh, he had this next northern area up into Lebanon and Syria, and then Licinius had even farther north than that. Uh, we don't know as much about Licinius as we do Pilate, Herod Antipas, and Philip. But when Herod the Great was in power, he actually had almost all of that region. Herod the Great was given, remember, he curried the favor of Caesar Augustus. He named Caesarea after uh, Caesar, and he had control of almost all of this area. Uh, by the time Jesus' ministry or John the Baptist's ministry, which were roughly the same time, our starting time, then this was divided into fourths. And Pilate, being a Roman leader, comes and rules Judea, and then the other areas each have a similar kind of top of head or governor over their region. And then John the Baptist's ministry, you can see I put the white oval here. The scriptures tell us where John the Baptist's ministry was mostly at. Does that mean he never ventured out of it? Probably not. He may have gone at other times. But, but just based on what the scriptures tell us, that's the general area of John the Baptist. He would be killed in Herod Antipas's region, even though the majority of his ministry was in Pilate's region. He would end up being imprisoned in the, the region just to the north there uh, of Herod Antipas. But his ministry was in the Jordan or the, uh, the Rift Valley in the desert areas, in the Jordan, all the way up. We know he baptized at Anon, which is about uh, three-quarters of the way up, uh, closer to the Sea of Galilee in the Jordan River Valley there, or the Rift Valley. So those are the, um, those are the regions that Luke... Wouldn't you agree Luke was pretty specific, wasn't he? He told us exactly. You know, you know that uh, Pontius Pilate, did you know many historians debated that he even existed? The skeptics always mocked the Bible. And they could, they could point to the fact that there's no historical evidence, zero, of Pontius Pilate. His name wasn't mentioned by Josephus. He wasn't anywhere. Until 1961, they were excavating again, which this has happened numerous times, and there it was, the stone with the inscription, Pontius Pilate, discovered in 1961. 
The Bible will always prove everything else wrong given time. And it will prove it all wrong at the end of time. Amen? Because some things God will still not reveal. Where's the ark? I've never seen an ark. Oh, it was there. Although I believe there's still some evidence that it, right, it may be uh, in, in the very region the Bible mentioned. But all of these things will come to pass and they'll be revealed. You can trust the veracity and the truth of Scripture. You can pull the slides down. Let's go forward. Um, the area that, uh, that Luke also, I think what's interesting, uh, the area that he uh, describes for us, uh, these four regions under these different tetrarchs are, are Roman rule, Pontius Pilate being governor, and the other three being tetrarchs. Uh, Jesus' ministry would also touch all four of those areas. Now, we don't know how far north Jesus ultimately went. For example, the Mount of Transfiguration, we don't know which high mountain he went up to. He could have gone further north uh, than even Israel at that time. Uh, But regardless of uh, that, we know that all of those areas, people came from to hear about Jesus and to meet him personally and be healed. I'll give an example of that in Matthew chapter 4. Verses 23 and uh, verse 23 through 25, Matthew 4. And Jesus went about Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, Galilee being in the northern part of Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, not just Israel, all Syria, and they brought to him all sick who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed and epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them, and great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. So the other side of the Jordan, that would be Jordan. We know Syria. We know in other places it mentioned that Jesus had people come from Tyre and Sidon. That would be Lebanon. So all the areas that Luke mentioned not only were the rule of what would have been the ancient kingdom of Israel, which belonged to the throne of who? David, but not only that, it also would be the very regions of which Jesus would touch and heal people from all of those areas. They would come. His fame would spread not just outside of Israel, but beyond. He also mentions here the priesthood, specifically here the high priest. In verse uh, 2, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the uh, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Now this was an interesting thing as well. Uh, How many high priests are there supposed to be? One. The high priest is given the mantle of high priest for life. You give up being high priest when you die. And then there's a successor. But... This changed under the Roman Empire. um, Empire. The high priest, or in the Hebrew, Kohan Gedol, was an office uh, for life until the Roman Empire changed it for political reasons and to manipulate its purposes. And according to Josephus, Annas, he served as high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15, and then he was deposed, Josephus tells us this, he was a historian during that time, And he actually fought against the Romans at one time as well. But Josephus tells us that he was deposed by the Romans in A.D. 15. So Annas was told by the Romans, I understand this whole, you're high priest for life, 
but not under Caesar. We decide who's high priest, and so you are no longer high priest. And then uh, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, he becomes high priest in A.D., well, somewhere between A.D. 25 and A.D. 26. Somewhere between A.D. 25, A.D. 26. Interesting enough, the Romans will later depose him too in A.D. 36. He would preside over Jesus' trial. But Annas would too. So Luke knows exactly what he's talking about. Why? Well, even though Annas is deposed as high priest in A.D. 15, he's still alive when Caiaphas becomes high priest in A.D. 25 or A.D. 26, right? If I, if I lost an office, and then 10 years later, my son-in-law took that office, but I was still alive, now we're both alive at the same time. The son-in-law, Caiaphas, has the Roman designation as the high priest. But Caiaphas was given the priesthood for life from who? God. So the Jews recognized Caiaphas as the high priest, and the Romans recognized Annas as the high priest. So the way Luke describes it, Luke says they're both high priests. Because Jews, we will recognize Annas no matter what the Romans say. We kind of still do this different, but once you're president of the United States, you're always called Mr. President the rest of your life, correct? And in the Jewish realm, if you were high priest, you would always be called high priest. doesn't matter what the Romans say, you're still the high priest. And even when Jesus' trial, remember they took Jesus first to who? Annas. They took to Annas, who was life for life according to God. They took him to Annas. Then they took him to Caiaphas, who had to be rubber stamped for the Romans. So even under this priesthood, Caiaphas was the high priest, but Annas still controlled his son-in-law. Isn't that always true? No, I'm kidding. Um, He still controlled the priesthood behind the scenes. So this gives you a little bit of a backdrop. Let's take a look. If you're taking notes this morning, and a couple things we'll uh, look at in the remainder of our time. Three things if you're taking note, John's mission... John's ministry, and John's Messiah. John's mission, John's ministry, and John's Messiah. So that's the backdrop that Luke gives us. Uh, Again, I'm very appreciative of the fact that the Holy Spirit gives Luke the direction to be this specific. And the more I study the Bible, the more I realize how incredibly accurate the Bible is to a T. And it will continue to prove more accurately as we get closer to the return of Christ. Everything else will come into focus. You ever take binoculars and at first they're not? You've got to kind of move both sides. That's the way the Bible is. The clearness is going to be seen. Each each successive year is going to make it clearer and clearer. And we will see future better when we understand the past and what God has already done. But let's look at John's mission, all of these things that Luke points out are important, but the most important is what John will begin to do and ultimately making the way for Christ to enter into the scene and to begin his own ministry. In verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance 
for the remission of sins. Remember that people wondered what John, back in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verse 66, it says, what kind of child will this be? They said of John the Baptist, what, what kind of child will he be? And the hand of the Lord was upon him, and we know that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even inside of his mother's womb. But John was given a mission, a mission. And we'll make a distinction this morning between mission and ministry. And what I, the distinction is this, mission, the command, ministry, the outworking of that command. The mission, here's your mission. Ministry, here's the doing of it. And we'll make that distinction uh, in John's life. But the mission, what does it mean? Well, mission is any important task that is assigned or allotted even self-imposed can be a mission. An important goal or a purpose that is accompanied by strong conviction, a calling or a vocation. It's a sending or being sent for some duty or purpose. Would you agree with me that God sent John for a very specific purpose? The whole of all the prophets, John was picked specifically to be the forerunner. There was many other great prophets. He would come in the spirit of Elijah, but himself, he said he was not Elijah. Elijah was Elijah, but he would come in the spirit of Elijah. He would be great like Elijah. He would preach with the authority like Elijah. He would be endued with the power of the Holy Spirit like Elijah. But he would be the forerunner. Similar, miraculous birth. Not, not equal to Jesus' virgin birth, which is the greatest of all births, but John's, no doubt, we would all agree, is miraculous in and of itself. His parents very much in age, and for him to be given to them at such an old age, that was miraculous. The fact that his father could not speak for all the time that his wife, Elizabeth, was pregnant, not named after him, which everyone assumed Zacharias being of the priesthood, most certainly is going to be a Zacharias Jr., but he wasn't. His name, Yochanan. John will be his name. He had a mission, though. What was his mission? Well, it tells us right here in the text. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, his mission was prophesied. His mission was foretold. His mission was already predestined, predefined by God the Father. God, by the way, your mission is predestined and predefined by God the Father. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, and what is it? There it is, prepare the way. As I mentioned, the title of our time in God's Word today, preparing the way. This is John's mission, to prepare the way of the Lord. In ancient times... When monarchs would move uh, from one place to another, they, if, if you were a powerful monarch, if you were a king in the ancient Near East, Far East, Middle East, um, the trip is planned, you would have crews sent out ahead of you to make everything as smooth as possible. We still do this today. When the president travels to another country, it's not just Air Force One that goes. It's several planes, lots of black SUVs, lots of secret service, lots and lots of entourage, lots of money spent, 
millions spent to go before and prep. True? Still happens today. And it will happen as long as America is around, and it's not just ours, but other world leaders do not to the extent of us. We, we, we do far more than everybody else. But monarchs in ancient times, they would smooth out the way, get everything ready for the monarch to proceed forward. And so this was common. But not only that, this is prophetic in the sense that Jesus himself will one day smooth everything out. The whole earth is groaning, isn't it? whole earth is groaning. Mountains pop up because there's great rifts and great tectonic plates. Do you realize that the earth is crashing against itself, which causes the Pacific Rim, which causes volcanoes to rise, which causes earthquakes, subduction, and all these different things when these uh, different massive uh, plates of, of earth and crust are ramming into each other. And someday Jesus is going to make every island will be moved out of its place. Every, the whole earth will be smoothed out. Even in heaven, we know the sea is no more. Everything will be calm. Just like David talks about in the 23rd Psalm. Still waters. All of that. The waves won't rage anymore. The seas won't rage anymore. So not only does the monarch get preparation, but this monarch will be the one to smooth it all out. Isn't that great? He'll make everything calm. Bring peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Ultimately, Jesus will fulfill this even more than John the Baptist because although John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord, it says in verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John is not the salvation of God. He's preparing that the world would see the salvation of God and not only would souls be saved, but someday the earth will be calmed and given rest. Won't that be wonderful? We'll see that someday face to face. But there's three things here that fulfill John's mission, or three things here that are part of his mission, I should say. Uh, the first one is in verse 4, as it is what? <coughs> Written. John's coming, John's mission has to fulfill Scripture. All things must be fulfilled, amen? Everything God's ever written not only must be fulfilled, guess what? It will be fulfilled. There's nothing that anybody can stop. Herod tried to stop it. I'll kill all the baby boys under two. How'd that go? Well, miserably for the mothers in, 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 in Judea at that time, they wept, Rachel weeping for her children. But did it stop God's plan? Not at all. Nero tried it. Hitler's tried it. Communist governments have tried it. North Korea's leader still is trying it. But nobody can actually thwart or stop the fulfillment of Scripture. In John, it was written by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We know that John himself says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Because he says, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, but I am the one crying in the wilderness. Oh, that's what Isaiah meant. You're the voice. I am the voice. I'm the one crying in the wilderness. Preaching, second thing. First, John's mission would fulfill the Scriptures. Second, his mission would be to preach repentance, telling people to turn from sin. Repentance for the remission of sin. The mission's there in, in verse 3. Repentance for the remission of sin. That John would preach. That he would cry out with a loud voice, a voice saying, repent, 
For the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sins. Turn to the Savior. Turn to Messiah. And lastly, he would announce and proclaim Jesus to be Emmanuel. He would proclaim that the Lord Jesus Christ would be Emmanuel, that all flesh would see the salvation, that he would ultimately point, as we see in John chapter 1, he says what? Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Now this was also given to his father. Remember in Luke 1.17, he will also go before him in the, power of Eli- in the spirit and power of Elijah, Remember, angel Gabriel said, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That the angel Gabriel said, your son will turn people from disobedience to the Lord. And he'll make them ready to hear from the Lord. Make them ready to hear. Yeah, a similar thing... um, you know, if a room is really loud, room is real loud, everybody's talking, and uh, someone's going to be the special speaker. You ever been somewhere, I've been at nice dinners like this, and I've also been at you know, just family functions, and I've been in a room like this where everyone's loud, everyone's talking, someone has to start, maybe at a nice place, they tap the glass with the spoon, everybody gets quiet. Someone has to prepare everybody to now hear And that's what John is. He's the one that quiets everyone down and says, he actually does more than that. He actually tells the same message first, meat tenderizing the hearers, and then Jesus will stand up and said, now I'm fulfilled in your hearing. And he will then preach the full message. And that the flesh would see that he is God. Emmanuel, what? God with us, that Jesus himself would be the one, but John would prepare the way, and he would first preach repentance. Jesus would not stop that. He would continue it, but he would then expound upon it. Jesus would do even more teaching on all of the scriptures. John had a very singular message. Repent, turn from sin, turn from sin, turn from sin. Jesus would then continue that message, but would expound upon it and actually reveal things of the law in the Old Testament that no one had understood. In Luke 176, remember Zacharias' prophecy said, new child will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. That, again, all of this part of John's mission, his mission to preach repentance, his mission to go before the Lord, and his mission to point to Jesus. That's still our mission today. You and I have Christ in us, but all we can really do is point people to him. Amen? We, we still do the same. We prepare the way of the Lord by telling people about the Lord. We fulfill the scriptures in that we, being the Gentiles, would now share with others. Abraham would have many descendants, and we are his descendants, right? We're the descendants of Abraham, that we too have become grafted in, part of the ministry of God and reconciling the world to himself. So all of the ministry of John, you and I have part and parcel with that same ministry. But for John, he was very special in that he was anointed to be the one, the forerunner, 
to lay the tracks for Jesus to arrive on the scene. Now let's look at his ministry. In the next passage, we see the outworking of it. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized, brood of vipers, how to win friends and influence people, right? John has not listened to these seeker-sensitive pastors, has he? He would be coached into a corner by many leaders today. John, you're not going to get Twitter followers like that. It ain't going to happen. John, you want Facebook lights? That's not how you do it. You pat people on the back and tell them how wonderful they are. And you tell them that God loves them no matter what in the world they do. They can blaspheme his name. He still loves them. We're all God's children and all that stuff. And all the, you know, the false things the Pope has recently said. But John, who is he talking to here, by the way? Let's take a look. Uh, before we look a little more, let, let's look at a couple of the other Gospels. Turn with me uh, to uh, Mark chapter... Let's go to Matthew 3 first, then we'll look at Mark 1. Matthew chapter 3. Turn quickly to the left. Ma- Matthew chapter 3. And then we'll look at Mark chapter 1. I don't have time to look at John's gospel. It'd be nice. But the emphasis of John's gospel is that behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. We'll keep that in mind as well. But look at Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist, starting verse 1, Matthew chapter 3, starting verse 1, those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Again, the preciseness of the Bible the veracity of scriptures, where was his ministry? You saw it on the map. You see it again here. You saw it from Luke. And his ministry is this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, for this is he who is spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Again, we know each of the gospel writers know that he fulfills this very specific voice of one in the wilderness. Verse 4, that John himself with clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Jesus will talk more about John's exterior uh, when we get further in the book of Luke. We don't have time to cover that today. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, uh, very likely people on both sides of the Jordan, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 7, this is who he was talking to when he made those great statements of friendship. But when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And then we see the same thing. Uh, you know, God can say to Abraham, and, you know, or he can say to stones, you're children of Abraham. God can do anything he wants. So he's speaking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees when he says brood of vipers, not the larger crowd but specifically to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, there's certainly a crowd that he's telling to repent, but much like Jesus had compassion on the multitudes, Jesus' most scathing words were to religious leaders who were misrepresenting God. And that's why if I show you uh, the, the video I mentioned, Clouds Without Water, there's nothing too harsh that God would levy. It's not my job, it's not your job to levy on anybody but it is the Holy Spirit's job, and we must be aware 
that misrepresenting God is a very serious thing. And John, under the power of the Holy Spirit, called them brood of vipers. Why? Because they would sink their venom into people with a false leading. Now look at uh, uh, Mark chapter 1 and what Mark records. Mark chapter 1, just go to the right a little bit. 20-some chapters over. Mark chapter 1. And we see... I'm not going to read, uh, again, he covers, uh, the mess, he covers the prophecy of Isaiah as well uh, in the first three verses there. We see in verse 4, he came baptized in the wilderness, the preaching of uh, baptism and repentance for the remission of sins. He records the same thing. All the land of Judea, uh, those from around Jerusalem, those uh, near the Jordan River, confessing their sins, recognizing they were sins. He also references uh, as well John's uh, exterior, what he wore, uh, the locusts and honey that he ate, and then he says as well that he's not worthy to loosen even the sandal strap. So we see the testimony is confirmed. Some of the messages in the Gospels only Luke records, maybe that John or, or John and Matthew or Mark don't record it, but in this one, not one, not two, but three witnesses. I think that's interesting, don't you? The three witnesses, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, a verily, verily, verily. The ministry of John is incredibly important to who? God. That it's recorded all three times that he fulfills the word, that he points to the Savior, and he preaches repentance. You and I must fulfill the word by being faithful to the word. We must preach the Savior, and we must point people to the Lord. It's important. This isn't compromised in any way. John's been given a mission and a ministry, but now he has to fulfill it. And we see, turning back to Luke chapter 3, um, he does fulfill it. He is fulfilling it. He goes and does what the Lord has laid His Holy Spirit upon him. And this isn't easy. He's living a really sanctified, set-apart life. How many of you really want to live in the wilderness? John, John had just as much ability as you and I do. Could have been a successful whatever. True? But he says, yes, Lord, your calling, your precise calling, I will do. You want me to preach and, and people think this guy is off his rails. Wears camel skin, eats locust and honey, lives out in the wilderness. And what in the world is this whole baptism thing? And he's commanding everybody to turn from their sins. Who does he think he is? Who are you to judge me? You ever heard that? How dare you judge me? Philip the Tetrarch's going to feel the same exact way, isn't he? Or Herod, I should say. How, how, how dare you judge me that I took my brother's wife? Who are you to tell me I can't have anyone I want? This is what the attitude of the world is. You're your own God. And John says, no, you're not. The living God is coming soon. You're going to see him face to face. And he, when he takes his winnowing fan, what's he going to do? Well, he tells us. He's going to take his 
Verse 17, his winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. He will gather wheat into his barn. Wheat would be those that are saved. Chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Those that will not repent, those that will not relent, those that refuse to surrender to Jesus, those that stay disobedient will be burned with unquenchable fire. This is John's message. This isn't popular preaching in a lot of pulpits today, is it? I'm telling you, John would not be invited by many, many large churches in America, and small churches too, and many ministries. Now, many he would. I'm not here to paint some broad brush. There's plenty of churches in Richmond that would love to have John the Baptist teach, just like I would. But there's many more that would not. This is not the message of many men of God, or many men that are supposed to be men of God in this day and age, and the apostles and Jesus himself warned that this would be the case, that even as we get closer to the end, there would be more and more teachers lifted up that would actually help people with their itching ears and give them exactly what they want to hear, but that's not what John preached. And not only do you have the teachers with the itching ears, but the scribes and Pharisees who he called what? Brood of vipers. Their was to keep people in their ministry was not so much an itching ears ministry and just kind of soft pedaling, although they did some of that too, they wanted to keep people in bondage to them. They don't want people following Christ, and this happens today too, where you have ministries who want you to follow the leader, not follow Christ. And make them rich, and make them powerful, and help them have the private jet, and all the other trappings of all the other things that they want, uh, that their lustful, greedy desires can get their hands on, and the scribes and Pharisees, they had a lust for what? Position. The best seats at the table, Jesus said. The pats on the back. The greetings in the marketplace. People worshiping them. The same things Herod wanted. The same thing Philip the Tetrarch wanted. The same things Pilate wanted. The same thing Tiberius wanted. They were no different. Jesus said, you are supposed to represent the humility of Moses, who was the first one that I called under the law to be my servant and prophet. Moses was known as what by God? The most humble man on the face of the earth. The Pharisees and Sadducees, not humble. They wanted the people to worship them and think they were something super special. And they would live like, really, aristocracy, while the common people would give their money and everything else to the temple. And these guys lived it up, had the best clothes, had the best everything, and John the Baptist was the counter to them. He was the complete opposite. He didn't dress like them, didn't talk like them, and he told them, who warned you they're at to come? They're probably thinking, what are you talking about? We're not here because of any warning. We're here because we don't like you. And what are you talking about, wrath to come? We're, we're the spiritual sons of Abraham. And he says to them, don't think for yourself. Uh, he says, we, uh, they say, we have Abraham as our father. And he says, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from stones. God's not impressed with your ministry. Matter of fact, he is nauseated by your ministry. He told me to tell you, I have a message from you, you are vipers. You're snakes. Who was the original serpent? Satan. You're of your father, Jesus said, the devil. And so you have a lot of, you know, God... God doesn't want anyone to die and go to hell. Not a false pastor, not a false evangelist, not a Sadducee, 
not a Pharisee. How did Jesus receive Nicodemus when he came to him? Did he say, get out of here. I can't stand religious leaders. No. If they were willing to humble themselves, if they would flee the wrath to come, they too could be saved. But John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw that that is not what they wanted, at the moment anyway. Some of them, I'm sure, did turn. Praise the Lord. Amen? You and I were rebellious at a time. You and I were hard-hearted, hard-headed. We finally came to our senses. But at this time, they aren't coming to their senses. They're not there to flee the wrath. And John knows they're not. He's asking a question that they know they have to internalize. We're not here to flee the wrath. What are you talking about? If anyone's going to get wrath, you're going to get wrath because you're, you're, you're of the priesthood, but you're not acting like a priest, John. Your father Zacharias was a priest. What is this desert ministry? Where's your white robes? What are you doing? Who are you to tell people they can be forgiven of sins? If anyone can do that, the high priest is the only one. He goes in the day of atonement. Who are you? But he's not, John's not pointing to himself to, to forgive sins, is he? He's only saying, Look, I, I, I'm only telling you where you can dump the load of sin. I'm only telling you how you can be cleansed. I'm not the cleanser. I baptize with water, but there's coming one who baptizes with what? The fire of the Holy Spirit. The one who can change you from the inside out. The one that can radically transform you. I'm not he, but I'll tell you who he is. He has this ministry that he's been given. He must fulfill it. John is fulfilling it. You and I have been given a ministry. If we've been born of the Spirit, if we've been transformed, now we must, not should, must do the works and the ministry that God has set before us. Amen? Paul, in 2 Timothy 1.1, he's writing to Timothy, first says of his own ministry, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. According to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, Paul says, I have my ministry. I'm an apostle. Some people may refuse me as an apostle. Some people may say, you're not an apostle. You weren't walking and talking with Jesus. We know who his disciples were, and you weren't one of them. You were a, you're a Christian killer. Paul said, I, I know all that's true. All I can tell you is he made me an apostle on the road to Damascus. I wasn't looking for it. Matter of fact, I was doing the opposite. I was trying to snuff out anybody who would look for, and he made me an apostle by his will. Now I am what I am, but by the grace of God. He goes on in writing to Timothy in, first, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Then he says to Timothy, who had his own ministry calling, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So Paul said, now Timothy, I've been given the ministry of apostle. You've been given the ministry of a pastor through the laying on of hands that you would have the ministry of teaching the word of God, pastoring a church, and evangelism. Now you have to, he told him, I remind you to stir it up. Don't let it fade away. Paul would write the same thing to you if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a dad, if you are a grandparent, if you are a young person. Each of you have been given the gifts of the Spirit. You've been given the ministry of the Holy Spirit to stir up and do that which you've been called to do. And then he goes on in 1 Timothy 4.14. He says, Do not neglect 
the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands. 1 Timothy 4.14. Do not neglect the gift. See, John, he could have neglected his calling, but he didn't. Right? It was prophesied. But even what we've been called to, we have to be obedient in it. We have to be obedient. We have to submit and surrender. And then in Colossians 4.17, to Archippus, Paul writes, Take heed to the ministry which you have received from the Lord, that you may fulfill it. That you have to fulfill it. Jesus is going to fulfill all things, but we have to fulfill what he's called us to do. He wrote the same thing, Paul, in 2 Timothy 4, 5. In Ephesians 2, 10, again, we can look at John's ministry. We can look at John's faithfulness to the ministry. But what about our own? Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm not the voice of one crying in the wilderness. None of you are. In the sense of, we're not called to be John, the son of Zacharias. But we're called to have the same message as John, the son of Zacharias. And we, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10, that we are to be walking in the works prepared beforehand, before even the foundations of the world. You have a mission to be a mom or a dad that is godly, that's a spirit-led ministry of motherhood or fatherhood, or a ministry to be a young Daniel or a young Joseph here if you're a young person in the world, or a young Mary that would be a light and a testimony. You're called to have this ministry. You know, think about parenting. How many unsaved people do you know? This is not their terminology, so we know they wouldn't think this. How many unsaved people do you know that are parents would ever refer to their parenting as a ministry? Without prompting them to think the thought, I could ask thousands of unsaved parents from West Coast to East Coast, describe your role as parenting, and I would bet 1% or less would ever use the word ministry. And yet, we know that ministry, matter of fact, in the house of God, if there's not ministry taking place in your home, you can't be you can't be serving as a minister in the house of God if you first aren't ministering in your own household. Ministry starts in the home, and what we do there, we don't leave there, we take it beyond there because we're supposed to love God first and love who next? Our neighbor as ourselves. We not only want our kids to go to heaven, we not only want our kids to repent and turn from sin, but we want our neighbor's kids to repent and turn from sin, and the neighbors themselves, and our boss, and our co-workers. And our leaders, our governmental leaders, everyone around us. Uh, John, you think John was telling Herod these things because he was saying, I'm holy, Herod, and you're not. Herod, you're a pervert. Me, I'm really, really pristine clean. No, he wanted Herod to repent, didn't he? But it didn't go so well, did it? This message, uh, many 
Remember, the same message that many people repented and were changed. We're gonna, well, I'm going to have to save some for next week, but let's, let's just close on these, these things right here as far as John's ministry. I'll pick up uh, John's Messiah when we look at, uh, we're going to look at Jesus anyway next week with the baptism of Christ. But look at what John uh, experiences. The same sun that hardens the wax also softens the clay. True? Same sun. And we see that John's message of repentance, therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit, He's not telling people to all of a sudden make yourself good fruit bearers. He's saying, turn from sin, call upon the Lord, and God will make you. God will remake you. God will change you. But you have to first repent. Matanawa is the Greek word for preaching or for repentance. The word repentance, matanawa, a change of mind as it appears to one who repents of purpose he has formed. A change of mind of one who repents of purpose. I saw a TV evangelist recently call repentance going from negative thinking to positive thinking. Nice try. That is not repentance. I kid you not. This was, and he's watched by millions, a positive thinking. I heard that when I was in Fortune 500 America all the time. They say it every week if you're on conference calls and everything else. Everyone thinks that. Think positively, all these other things. That's not repentance. A change of mind is to change that I am not the Lord of my life. I cannot save myself. I am worthless, not even worthy to touch Jesus' sandal strap. I'm worthy of hell. I I change my mind and say, God, you are right. I am wrong. You are holy. I am wicked. Please change me. Please save me. That is a turning from believing in oneself to believing in Christ. Amen? That is what repentance is. And when we see it, when we see it, we see the fruit of it. John says to bear fruit of repentance. We'll come to a close with these thoughts. Look at verses 12, 13, and 14. Tax collectors. They truly wanted to know. They not only wanted to be saved, but they wanted to stop living in a way that was contrary to the Word of God. Tax collectors, John says, stop taking more than what belongs to you. Remember when Zacchaeus repents, when he comes to Jesus, he goes and restores more than the law required him to. He was so repentant. Whenever you meet someone who's repentant and they don't want, they have no desire to go back and make things right with people they have seriously harmed, they have not repented. Oh, that's kind of a blanket statement. Yes. True repentance will not allow, oh, whatever I did, I did. want to make things right. Soldiers. Soldiers came. Isn't that great? Roman soldiers came to him. Isn't that fantastic? They wanted to know. He said, don't falsely accuse. They could, do, they could impose their will on anybody. No longer impose your will. Don't take false wages. Don't extort people like the mafia or something, because they could. They could impose their will anytime they wanted. They had the imperial rule of Rome behind them. They could do it. And, and John says, if you're going to follow Christ, you follow a new emperor, and you're going to meet him real soon in just a few verses. 
all of them, as the people were in expectation. Now they wanted to meet their new leader. And we're going to have to stop there. We'll, we'll pick it up with John's Messiah, and we'll look at John's Messiah along with verses 21 through 28 in the lineage of Jesus as well. But, you know, I could preach for weeks on what true preaching repentance looks like, but it's very clear God desires everyone to be saved. Amen? But he sometimes will give a message that's hard enough to get people's attention. He sent John to say, look, preach this unflinchingly. But notice how gentle was John was when people repented. He didn't say, and you Roman soldiers, you dirtbags. He doesn't say that. No, the people thought that about him, right? He doesn't say, you dirtbags, you'll never be useful. You've extorted so many people. He just says, now stop doing that and start living right. Amen? Isn't that great that God forgives us of all that stuff? I'm not saying you can fix every past thing. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to, to go and let people know, hey, I'm not going to do that stuff anymore. I've been changed. I've been transformed. And this is the message that John preached, and we'll look more about the fulfillment of this when we look at uh, uh, Jesus and his ministry starting next week, with the baptism, and we'll take a look again at John's Messiah.